because my fundamental point is I'm afraid our justice systems around the world are broken for almost everyone. They cost too much, they take too long, the process is unintelligible unless you're a lawyer. It's out of step in a digital society, so it seems to me we might well be open to new ways of resolving disputes and we should at least listen to and explore some alternatives. and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the Project Coordinator at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarlane, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. The first thing we want to do on this episode, and if you subscribe to our, our newsletter, you would have seen this message already, but we feel it's important to say right off the bat that we are in full support of the Black Lives Matter movement we're committed to working towards anti-racism in every way that we can. And we want to note that our next episode, which will drop... Our season two finale. Weeks, our season finale, yes. We're working on a season finale, and it will drop uh, two weeks from today. And we're preparing something on those themes. And we've got a couple of really great guests uh, lined up, and we're, we're very excited to talk to them about all of this. And we also want to note, as regular listeners may be aware, we have a wonderful guest correspondent for these last three episodes of our season. Jordan Furlong is working on our In Other News segment. And for today's episode, as a kind of precursor to next week, and just because all of this, is, of course, is, is top of mind right now for everyone, and there's so much out there that people should be aware of. He has done the entire In Other News segment for today on racial justice, particularly in the context of the legal profession and access to justice. So please do stay tuned through the whole episode and listen to In Other News. And today's conversation is with someone who is, I think I can safely say, a bit of a legend or even perhaps a lot of a legend. And that is <laughs> Professor Richard Suskind. It also means that we can boast that we have had two Scottish people on our <laughs> yes. season uh, because Richard is a, is a professor at the University of Glasgow, but more importantly, he is known internationally and has been now for a number of decades speaking about the need to modernize the justice system and the legal profession. Uh, he is extremely outspoken on issues that I know are very important to our listener audience, including deregulation um, of the legal profession and the end of the legal profession's monopoly, which we have seen some steps towards in the UK, which is where Richard is based. He's also a prodigious author of seven books, including his newest book, which we're going to talk about quite a bit in this conversation, Online Courts and the Future of Justice. And stay tuned for what I think is a fascinating discussion about what we might hope for the future in access to justice. Hello, Richard. Thank you so much for being willing to do this today. And I have to say it's a special pleasure to have a fellow Brit to talk to this morning. Usually our podcast listeners have to put up with my accent, and now they're going to hear a real British accent, correct? Yeah, yes, Julie, great to be with you. Not just, a, I have to say, a British accent, a Scottish accent. Yes, so Richard is really a Scottish person, whereas I just have a name that makes me look like a Scottish person. So Richard Suskind, lovely to have you here today. 
Now, as you know, many of the people who listen to this podcast are people who are self-representing uh, because they can't afford a lawyer. And it seems an obvious place to begin, especially given your most recent book on online courts, to ask you, do you think that online courts, and we have a model for this in British Columbia and the Civil Resolution Tribunal, are inevitably going to expand people's uh, ability to self-represent? Because the CRT, for example, um, only allows lawyers to represent people in exceptional circumstances. It's worth starting off with some kind of characterization of what online courts are. Yeah, please do. In my new book, I have quite a specific idea, which is really two components. The first is online judging, and that's the idea that there's no physical hearing, there's no oral evidence, but parties submit their evidence and their arguments electronically, and the judge, and it is a human judge, responds you can imagine it's almost like an exchange of emails, uh, responds with some kind of resolution. Right. So that's one component. The other component, which actually is more radical, is what I call the extended courts, because it troubles me in the 21st century that so few people have realistic access to legal guidance and legal help. Right. Never mind access to the courts. Yeah. And so there's little point in having some kind of dispute resolution mechanism unless you can have a way of understanding your entitlements, understanding the options available to you. There's little point in asking people to submit their arguments and evidence electronically unless there's help in organizing and marshalling evidence and arguments. And also, it's often the case, I think, that we can move away from a focus on dispute resolution to what I call dispute containment. Very often when lawyers and judges get involved, and I'm not saying this is malicious, it's just how it is, that disputes can escalate. Mm. And so I would like baked into the system some mechanisms as part of the system to help people perhaps settle their cases um, uh, without judicial involvement. So when you put this together, the idea is a kind of three-level architecture. It's not unlike the civil resolution tribunal. Right, right. Some kind of facility to help people understand their position and organize their and cases. And their legal rights, yeah. Yeah. Uh, some kind of provision for alternative dispute resolution, not as a private sector offering, but as part of the court Part service. of that process. And I don't really like the phrase, but it's the truth. That as a last resort, cases going before judges and being resolved in the standard way. And so fundamental for me is that we can have some kind of proportionate and intelligible service. I wouldn't be inclined as a matter of course to exclude lawyers, but I'd like a process that can be used by most people without invoking lawyers. And I'd like mechanisms in place which levels the playing field when lawyers involved in one side and they aren't involved in the other. But there's a second kind of online court which is very much in vogue just now, tragically because of the virus, and that's the, the video hearing, mm. where essentially the current court process is dropped into Zoom. You are appearing before a judge and there are uh, conventional and traditional procedures. It's an electronic version of, right, the, of the same thing. Court. Yeah. So intuitively, I like the idea, in principle, of people being able to in a proportionate way, without taking a day off work, without instructing lawyers, sit at the kitchen table, be tracked through a set of relatively straightforward procedures, and for certain kind of cases, 
have justice dispensed in this way. Terribly conscious though, a lot of people often talk in this context about, and it's, it's right to point out that not everyone has access, access to technology, but actually I'm less worried about computer literacy and more worried about literacy more generally. Than right, I, let's just dig a bit deeper into that because I think, you know, if we say that asynchronistic processes are processes that give you thinking time, which is how I generally sort of look at those. And that's what we're seeing in many of these online court models. We have the virtual uh, hearings going on at the moment for the pandemic, but the way that online courts have developed and you write about in your, in your book is generally with that thinking time built in. As you say, you sit at your kitchen table. Now, if you don't have a lawyer to help you, and some of these are being set up so lawyers do not participate other than exceptionally. What kinds of other help do you think people need? And do we have a system at the moment that gives people access to that kind of other help? I think that there's two kinds of help. There's human help and technology help. Right. The human help comes in two shapes and forms. One is, say, in the UK, we've got this idea of assisted digital. So people who need help and perhaps don't have the layer to the technology, there will be human beings assisting with the process. And I think that needs to be institutionalized and part of the... But there's another option which I suspect might make Canadian lawyers, it certainly makes English lawyers wince. And that is the idea that we move away from a highly adversarial process mm. to a more investigatory process. Ordinary language expressions of problems and difficulties by parties are quite quickly analyzed by the judge who can then ask for further details, right. come towards a more precise right. version of what's being asserted. And so the judge is more involved right. in the conversation and is trying to, it's not in the spirit of ADR, it's still a court process, but it's an ongoing discussion where the judge is encouraging each party to give the best expression and the clearest expression right. of the idea. And so can I just I, take you back to one of the things you said a moment ago that I think people will be really interested to hear your view on, Richard. You said, what, what is it that you can do to try to level the playing field in these online systems where maybe one person has access to a lawyer or legal assistance? And of course, even at the CRT, that can happen behind the scenes mm -hmm. and the other person doesn't. Do you think that it's possible to kind of equalize it more fairly, the different amounts of knowledge and power? Imagine this was the same method was being used where you'd a, a large insurance company and a self-representative. Right, exactly. Uh, one able to formulate their arguments in crystal clear legalese to gather and present their evidence impeccably, and the other well-intentioned, but no experience of doing this. It doesn't offend my principles of justice to think that the judge might help that individual not necessarily argue new, uh, new points, uh, but to make the most of right. how it is, for example, they assemble and present their documents and how it is. So a more they, interventionist role for yeah, the judge yes, in that way. And yeah. they identify their big legal points. Yeah. Uh, but I accept that that is a very substantial move ahead, away from the traditional adversarial system. But as long as it's delivering just outcomes and the process is just now a whole bunch of other justice tests uh, i'm not going to reject that simply because it offends a traditional decision-making process 
because my fundamental point is I'm afraid our justice systems around the world are broken for almost everyone. They cost too much, they take too long, the process is unintelligible unless you're a lawyer. It's out of step in a digital society, so it seems to me we might well be open to new ways of resolving disputes and we should at least listen to and explore some alternatives is electronic. I explore a little bit in my book some other ideas about having, for example, standard, standard argument flows. And, and this is not fully formed, but I can see how it might look. But in, in many cases, there's a relatively few small number of standard argument flows right. and forms that are put forward. Oh, now this is heresy you're saying here, Richard. You're suggesting the automation so. of legal argument. I mean, it's very interesting because we actually have a couple of folks that have been working with us at the project, including a judge, who have been really pushing this idea of standard legal memos. Let's just make them available to the public. So those might be the technological ways in which we could support people without lawyers. You also talked about the human ways. I mean, you know that in Canada, unlike in England and Wales, we still have a very strict... Um, legal monopoly so mm -hmm. that the kinds of things that people are able to help um, self-represented litigants with um, that might get anywhere close to legal advice are prescribed. Um, maybe you could say a little bit about how that's changed in England and Wales and what you think the future is for non-lawyer, if I can use that word, which I don't like, but for non-lawyer types of assistance. Yeah, it, it's always struck me that lawyers, indeed all professions, should survive and thrive because they bring value that no one else can and not because others are regulated out of the field. Right. And so I'm quite vocally critical, I'm not objectionable, I just think that uh, we say it's in the interest or it is said it's in the interest and protection of citizens, but uh, I, I believe in greater and wider choice. In 2004, I think it was 2004, I called David Clementi, who was not a lawyer, interestingly, was invited by uh, the Tony Blair government, which is a very thrusting and reforming government, to look at the monopoly in the legal world and came up with the view that, uh, in, in the broadest of terms, that consumers were not being given... It didn't work, choice. right. And there was only one channel. It gave rise, quite controversially, to our 2007 Legal Services Act, which in turn came into force in 2011. And broadly speaking, the way I express it anyway, it allowed for the first time, horrible category again, the non-lawyer to share profits with the right. lawyer in right. business. It allowed for the introduction of external finance, like private equity and venture capital into legal businesses, quite important if you wanted to put in place good technology. And it allowed the setting up of these alternative business structures. I think the fundamental point that's often missed by those who worry about liberalization is it's not uh, an unregulated free-for-all. It's just that a far wider cross-section of people can be involved in the delivery of legal services. Right. And I think in terms of consumer choice, this is a good thing because there's the protection under the regulation, but there's a wider range of individuals involved. So it does worry me in those jurisdictions where pride in being a lawyer seems to trump the broader issue, which is that we really do need to offer reasonable access to legal services, to court right. service in a civilized society. There is no point in having an excellent system that works for the only the few people who can afford it. Well, you know that uh, we are on the same page there, Richard. And that, but that brings me to, to another question. I mean, we still have in Canada this feeling that the sky is falling when there's any talk about giving you know, paralegals a very tiny little piece of family law they can do. 
And one of the arguments, as you just indicated, is that lawyers see this as threatening their turf, which, you know, as, as, a, as a scholar of conflict for the last 30 years, seems completely ridiculous to me because the, the conflict turf never stops growing in any case. But one of the questions that our four recent grads, the four students who've worked for the National Self-Representative Litigants Project for three years, just graduating this summer, I asked them what they wanted me to ask you. And one of the things that they wanted me to ask you, and I think this is, in some ways, this is our hope for the future of the profession, was what would lawyers who are really committed to access to justice, really committed to trying to broaden consumer choices, what kinds of changes should they be thinking about to, as you put it just now, up their game? The fundamental shift I want to see, and again, I, I understand why people feel nervous and even disconcerted by the terminology, but in a way, I think we need to move away from professional legal service as a one-to-one -one consultative advisory process. Right. Lurking in the background, there being some kind of hourly billing mechanism going on, to understanding that so many legal problems and difficulties that people suffer from are fairly set pieces. And therefore, we move towards it being more a kind of right. information service. Subject I go to all the qualifications uh, about access to technology and literacy and so forth, but as a general shift away from the exclusivity and the unaffordability and the inaccessibility of the one-to-one -one service towards a far more homely and accessible online information service. I think that's a shift worth making. And I think uh, a move in a digital society to a more accessible system of guidance. And I have to say, this is not just in law. I think the same of uh, across all professions, in health service and so forth. Right. And this is, I don't know if you're familiar with work I did with my son, Daniel, who's an economist. Yes, indeed. Yeah. The future of the professions. And at a high level, we were asking, do we need the, the old gatekeepers? So yes. uh, I often say that professionals, they, at one pole, they're benevolent custodians of the knowledge and expertise that they look after and curate, and the other, they're jealous guards. Okay. And uh, sometimes in, in the jurisdictions where they're protected by regulation, I think they're the jealous guards. But the, the fundamental question we asked or, or came to ask was, how in society do you make practical expertise available how do you right. produce and distribute it and by practical yeah, expertise we were meaning the combination of knowledge experience wisdom know-how all of which professionals bring to bear but the channel of delivery and distribution is, is a bottleneck it's absolutely critical yes there's only a very few people who can benefit from the best experts so how do we liberalize this it's a different form of liberalization and we say by trying it's certainly in areas that are giving rise to highly recurrent problems. We have to try to find ways to codify, to engineer, to organize that knowledge and make it available. Right. And in a global scale, you could see this could mean online education for 8 billion rather than 2 billion. Right. You could, right. see, could offer access to health guidance on the same right. scale. And that's why I think we see the glimmer here of a solution to the access to, to justice problem. So to answer the four students, this therefore requires you to have a set of skills beyond the consultative advisory skills to the development of information systems. So you need to be into design thinking, into knowledge engineering, into process analysis. 
And I've got a list of about a dozen of the that I often put up a, on a slide when I'm presenting to traditional lawyers. And I say, who are these people? And they all look rather blankly back at me. And I say, they're tomorrow's lawyers. And right, exactly. They, they, exactly. They look rather and I say, I don't think we should define what a lawyer does in terms of the education we received in the 70s or 80s. No. You see, me, uh, lawyers are people who help their clients solve their legal problems. And if the way that we enable the problems to be solved requires the development of systems rather than the dispensing advice, we should be open to seeing these people in our lawyers. So this raises a huge educational challenge because we, by and large, in our law schools are producing 20th century lawyers. Oh, we're first. still training people the same way we were doing 100 years ago. Right. Yeah, That's absolutely. Right. So, but can I also say that a lot of what you've been talking about in the last 10 minutes or so um, would definitely attract um, the kind of labels of, you know, traitor to your profession, um, not respecting the institutions of the legal system, um, all the kinds of things that I get thrown at me a lot of the time. And I'm wondering, you know, you have become so incredibly influential and you must have withstood, I mean, that room of lawyers that you put up the list of, you know, new tasks for and they look at you blankly. I mean, they're not necessarily feeling warm and fuzzy towards you, Richard, when you're saying this. So why is it that people like you and others are able to so cogently set out what it is we, we need to do, yet are still somehow seen as outsiders, are still somehow seen as not really, you know, respecting the traditions yeah. of the profession? I think it's changing over time, uh, certainly. And I, I've been at this since I was a law student and started in 1981, so almost 40 years. Um, oh, I've got you beaten, I'm 1976. I don't think we should boast about our ages, <laughs> and it's beyond the scope of this discussion. But we've both been at it a fair time. I think, well, you may or may not agree, but I, I think I've gone from pariah would be too strong, but someone whose ideas were dismissed as ridiculous to someone who is gradually becoming quite mainstream. I think exactly. I actually prefer it when there's a fight. The reality is there's now a movement, or say a legal technology movement, that's very vibrant. Right. And I, I seriously meet now with a leader of a major law firm or a senior judge who's not sympathetic right. to what I'm saying. So there's been a shift. The truth is I've always been less interested in lawyers than justice. Mm. Uh, I, I don't believe in any of the professions in the intrinsic importance of how the work is done but I believe in the massive value of the benefits they bring. But these ben it's the benefits we should be seeking in medicine, it's health, in, in law, it's justice. And we should, I think, in an open society, allow debate of ways in which these great values can be achieved. And so I'm, I'm happy with myself that uh, it's not destructive, but it's positive because I want a society where genuinely people have access to legal help and can enforce, can understand and enforce their entitlements. I want a society where people can more easily become educated, where people can, if they have health problems, regain their health easily. If that requires us to upend, even dismiss our traditional institutions, then maybe that's the price we need to pay. I often enjoy comparing the mooting process at law school, which of course absorbs enormous amounts of student time and energy and a lot of money as being a little bit the equivalent of teaching doctors in medical school to do blood leaching. I mean, 
we've got to move on people. Unfortunately, I have to bring this to a close, Richard, because I could talk to you forever. But I think what you've just said actually leads directly into the last question that I wanted to ask you. And your new book, which I'm in the process of reading, um, Online Courts and the Future of Justice, which we'll, of course, put up with the pod, is dedicated to your granddaughter, Rosa, yes, who indeed. was born in 2018. And, you know, when I saw that and a couple of mentions of Rosa at the beginning of the book, it made me think, when Rosa is, I don't know, 12, 13, 14, and you try to explain to her that you had to have this debate about whether the courts should go wireless, what do you think she'd say? I mean, is this really just, I mean, just in inverted commas, a generational issue? I think in part is. I, I, I say in the book, but I, I cast my eyes a little further ahead, but at some stage, she will say, why on earth? Did you spend all that time on this? Yeah, I waste all that time on arguing <laughs> for the blatantly obvious. Yes. Some of the court services should be available online. And I think we need to press it this way. And I, that's often the kind of argument I try to use, just use a little bit of humour and just and allow people to take a step back and see us through the eyes of non-lawyers and users of the court system, where the instinct of so many people of her generation, indeed my children's generation, is surely there must be different, better, quicker right. ways of delivering this vital social and public service. And wondering why it is that the current incumbents so insist that their way is the only way. But as I say to you, I think, I think minds are changing. And one of the very few benefits to arise from this horrendous virus I think precisely is that people have been compelled to see that there might be different ways of working. And not in a sense, all we're doing now is working from home. So it's not it's not artificial intelligence, it's not fundamental change in the underlying models. Dropping a court hearing into Skype or Zoom, as I mentioned earlier, is not a actually a fundamental right. change. But as I say, I think there are whole bodies of professionals who are now thinking, oh, actually, uh, I needn't work in the way I always have done. Yeah. And so I'm terribly keen at this stage. We, we've just seen the, the door opening a little bit. I don't want it to shut. I want to say, to say, why don't we, as much as we can, capture as much data about what's gone well, about what's not gone so well. And so as we emerge from the crisis and we're facing, as you and I have discussed, a huge backlog in court cases around the world, for example, we can make the most of these technologies when we know and we have some evidence support they're effective. And we also know the areas where, frankly, we need to we need to return to the traditional courtroom. So I'm thinking we're going through like a, a massive social experiment, a kind of unscheduled yeah. experiment. And we've got to be gathering information and making sure we understand what good and, uh, the best and ways damaging consequences follow. And that's very much in, in, in your park because you're, you're a specialist precisely this kind of analysis. Well, let's just hope that having seen that we can do some things we've said for years that we couldn't do, that we can keep moving the best of those forward. Richard, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really have appreciated and loved this conversation. Likewise, pleasure is mine. Thank you so much. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Richard, and I have to admit that it went on for a great deal longer 
than we have edited it down to for the purposes of the podcast. Uh, we had so many things that we had in common in terms of our thinking about this and things to talk about. It was really a great conversation. And uh, of course, as always, there were a number of things that leapt out to me and something that I wanted to talk about a little bit further. One of those is when he talked about the need to move away from our traditional, highly adversarial justice process and towards something that is more an inquisitorial process where a judge is more involved in the discussion around the dispute. And not that, the Spanish Inquisition, which I know is Spanish what it makes people think no. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not the Spanish Inquisition. Um, but this, I think, reminded us of the Pincia decision, which we have here in Canada that was decided at the Supreme Court that we, you know, were fortunate to act as intervener on back in 2017 to consider self-represented litigants and take more of a an interest in how things are progressing for them. And, and to ask them those kinds of questions that would make for a much more balanced and fair approach to, to yeah. adjudication. And we are beginning to see, uh, as listeners know, a little bit of subsequent development of that idea in Canada. And I think it's something that our uh, UK listeners to this podcast might be especially interested in. And we'll post a link to the decision and our report on the subsequent mm-hmm. jurisprudence on the podcast page. So I'm going, to, I'm going to paraphrase what Richard said here, but he, the, you know, the substance of it was this really great idea uh, he basically said he didn't he didn't intend to exclude lawyers from the process, but he wants to see a system that can function without them. And I thought that was really, really great. Yeah, I think, you know, so much of what he says here shows that there can be a balanced and measured approach. I mean, we tend to get very polarized about this idea of whether or not, you know, everybody has to have a lawyer or not. And he's he's pointing to the, the inevitability, given how few people can afford to pay lawyers, that we need other kinds of support and assistance. And there's actually been a very interesting decision here in the last week, British Columbia Court of Appeal, that goes directly to this point that Rich is making. This is the decision in Booth. And again, we'll put the link on the podcast page. And it reviewed the section of the legislation that creates the Civil Resolution Tribunal, which of course is our online tribunal in Canada so far. And in Section 20, the Civil Resolution Tribunal says that they will only allow lawyers in exceptional circumstances for some of those disputes that go through there. The reason being that they recognize that most people can't afford lawyers. And if you've got a lawyer on one side and not on the other, you've got an obvious imbalance, something we've talked about a lot, obviously, mm. at the NSRLP. Unfortunately, the decision in Booth doesn't seem to understand that that was the reason for that provision. And they have heard an appeal from a condominium corporation who was told they could not be represented by a lawyer with the other side, the condo owners, unable to afford a lawyer, and they have overturned that denial by the CRT and sent it back for reconsideration. So this does a number of things that's, that are unhelpful to what Richard is espousing and that we agree with at NSRLP, which is we don't want to exclude lawyers, but we want people to have access to other kinds of help. That decision in Booth effectively says 
um, no, you know, you have the right to a lawyer, even if the other side doesn't have a lawyer, which is one of the problems they were trying to avoid. It also ignores the fact that part of the reason for saying we won't have lawyers representing people at the CIT was to encourage unbundling because, of course, mm -hmm. lawyers can still help. And it's those unbundled services that are really important and are available more widely to more litigants. So a very unfortunate step backwards in Booth. And then uh, finally, you were talking with Richard about um you know, the fact that we're now seeing, of course, more hearings online and, and things like e-filing and the courts are kind of doing what they can to function during this time of social distancing. And we, of course, have talked about this before that, you know, we would love to see these methods um, continue, albeit they need to be carefully considered and, you know, carefully designed and, and all of that kind of thing. But as Richard points out, we also, we don't want to be taking steps backwards. And, I, you know, I just wanted to mention, I, you know, our listeners may be aware one of the, the things that we've been doing over the last couple of months is posting regular updates on our website around information about court closures across the country um, and procedural changes and, you know, how exactly hearings are moving forward or not moving forward in various jurisdictions across the country. And we're constantly updating that a couple of times a week. And I was making those updates um, this week, and, and one of them was saying, okay, things are starting to return to normal, so we're now saying no more e-filing. You can't submit your documents via email. You have to go back to the previous system. And they did say, you know, we will continue to look into how we can make this work in the future and, you know, various methods going forward. But it was a little bit disappointing that after they've extended, you know, this opportunity for people to do this more easily uh, via email, now they're taking it back, which is kind of just exactly again. what we didn't want to see happening after COVID. So... No, and I, th and I think Richard puts it very well when he says, you know, there's so much potential here, but it's not straightforward. It's not mm. simply dropping uh, a video camera into an existing process. Yeah. But at the same time, we really hope that this will keep moving forward and that we won't see these signs that you're pointing out, Dana, that there might be slippage back to the old ways. Hello, I'm Jordan Furlong, and I'm your temporary host of In the News. What's in the news this week is the murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police officers, and everything that that event has galvanized, including hundreds of demonstrations and protests across North America and elsewhere in the world this past week, with more very likely to come. Maybe as importantly, what's in the news are signs of the potential for real change, in the norms around public statements and attitudes and actions concerning race and racism. There is no middle ground here on these issues, and you know, there shouldn't be. Everyone needs to decide where they stand on the issue of racism and to be upfront about it. And if you fail to do that, or if you come into these conversations with old positions or clueless statements, then you will pay the justifiable price. Just ask Stockwell Day as an example. I've been more vocal about these issues in this past week or so than I have been previously. And I think an appropriate question that could be asked of me as a result is, so where were you before now? You're just noticing this now, are you? 
And I think the only good answer I could give is that I'm late. And I should have been here before. And I can be judged on that. But I'm here now, and I'm speaking on this now. And I'm not the only person of privilege, straight white male privilege in my case, who has belatedly gotten past my discomfort about these issues. And in one important aspect, of course, obviously my discomfort or lack thereof is entirely beside the point, right? White guys have a sterling history of making everything all about us. And I really don't want to do that here. But I do want to say that more white people of privilege need to show up and act. It's nice that we're willing to listen, but you know, listening time was yesterday. Doing something time, that's today. So where I want to direct this edition of In the News is to the many other white people, white lawyers and legal professionals in particular, who haven't shown up yet. There is a ton of material online that tells you everything you need to know. I've provided links to a bunch of articles in particular that I really would like you to read. So please read them, embrace whatever discomfort they might bring you, and use it as a reason to do something. To do what? Well, the legal profession is overwhelmingly, monotonously white. It is not at all representative of Canada's population and culture, and that has consequences as those of us who have seen how the justice system interacts with and treats black people, indigenous people, people from any number of racialized communities can directly attest. There are many places where white lawyers can act to make a positive difference, but that seems like a pretty good place for some of us at least to focus our efforts, to make sure there are more lawyers who are black, indigenous, and from other racialized communities. More of these lawyers in positions of power, general counsel, corner office partners, deputy ministers, judges, senior court administrators. Beyond that, there's the justice system itself. The justice system, as any listener of this podcast knows very well, is not working properly. But it is a mistake to say, as I have been saying for quite some time, that it's broken. What I've come to appreciate is that the legal system is not broken. It is working exactly the way it was designed to work. The problem is that the way it was designed to work is no longer compatible with the kind of society we want to have. So my call out to other white people like me is to decide where you stand on racism in society and in the legal system and legal profession in particular, to publicly declare where you stand and then come do something about it. If we want change, we need to act on it and to lead it. That's what's in the news. Thanks for listening.